Hi, and welcome to the Writers' Forum on WRBH. I'm David Benedetto. Today, I am joined by Kat Stromquist, who is a writer for the New Orleans alt-weekly Gambit magazine, where she covers a lot of topics, including literary-related happenings in the city. How are you doing today, Kat? Pretty good. How are you, David? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Well, to kind of get this, this rodeo started, uh, how did you begin writing at Gambit? Gambit was my first job in journalism uh, in 2010, and I was an intern there. And I got that job because I knew the person who was doing the editing for the uh, fashion and lifestyle section there then. And she had seen my writing in, believe it or not, my live journal Ah. and was impressed by it. She was sort of a casual friend. And she was looking for an intern and asked me if I might like to intern there. And after my internship, I uh, freelanced for Gambit and some other outlets for a long time. And about just about exactly two years ago, in fact, tomorrow is my work anniversary. Oh, wow. I got the news that there was a position open there, uh, like a full-time staff position. So I applied for that job and received uh, received an offer for it, and I've been there since. Oh, great. Uh, were you big into live journaling? Oh, I was an avid yeah. live journaler. In <laughs> fact, I recently, I recently made an archive of my live journal, and it is over 2,000 pages. Oh, wow. So if ever I need like a tome to publish or like my memoirs, I have like plenty of source material. There you go. The primary source is right there mm-hmm. for, for the taking. So th- th- that's great. And you've done kind of a lot of different beats for the magazine in your time there. Mm-hmm. Uh, starting out, I, I've been through all of your archives, obviously, which is a scary thing for all you, obviously. Of them? <laughs> all of the archives. Um, Good lord. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did a uh, a series initially called On the Clock. Uh, which looked at New Orleanians with fun jobs. And I thought that was a really great idea and a great framework. And I was wondering if you could tell me about some of your favorite ones that you did. Oh, definitely my favorite one was the gentleman who manages the safety for the amusement park uh, at Storyland at City Park. And he gave me the rundown on just how seriously they take safety there and the ins and outs of managing safety for an organization like that. It's definitely, uh, as someone who is not the most comfortable person on roller coasters. I found it faintly reassuring to uh, discuss with him everything that goes into that. Good. Normally, so like seeing how the sausage is made actually made you feel better this time around. That's nice. Somewhat better. Although he did tell me that when they say don't rock the cart on the Ferris wheel, they very much mean that. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So FYI, (laughs) listeners, do not rock the cart. It's not just good advice. Okay. My anxieties are back up again, so that's nice. (laughs) Well, cool. And uh, to kind of flash forward a little bit, um, just last year, you wrote a big piece for the magazine uh, called Is New Orleans Worth It? Right. And you got a lot of attention for that piece. I I know a lot of commentaries, especially in New Orleans, obviously, but around conversations that are happening nationwide. Uh, And I was wondering what was kind of how did you come up with the idea for that piece and how did you kind of execute it and uh, how was the response for you? This is a conversation that had been happening more or less in my peer group. And uh, just for context, I'm in my early 30s, so I'm about the age where uh, people start really getting serious about their career and their future plans and kids and things like that. And I've lived in New Orleans for what now seems like a long time. I've been here since 2004. And there was this conversation that we had amongst our friends as people, you know, tried to level up in their jobs or tried to, you know, just make more money to become financially secure. And there just didn't seem to be anything out there uh, available for people. And this is this is also something that, to be perfectly frank, that I experienced in my own life here. 
for many, many years before I had the job that I have now, I waited tables here in New Orleans in addition to freelance writing. Mm -hmm. And I think that experience really stuck with me because I did that for such a long time. And I saw many smart, talented people who I knew from my time uh, doing that kind of work who just were not able to pursue the paths they wanted to pursue or move forward financially. That was sort of the germ of the idea for that piece. And Kevin Allman, the editor, and I had sort of pulled the trigger on it when um, some new information came out about how much money was required to live a comfortable life in New Orleans, uh, like a two-bedroom apartment and to sustain two kids. There was some new data that had been released about that. So it seemed like a good time to have that discussion. But I was not expecting that article to just explode in the way that it did. It was the most, I believe it was the most viewed article on our website uh, all year. Uh, It got some national traction. Atlantic City Lab wrote a piece that heavily referred to it. It seemed like it was just time to have that conversation in an open way. And I still get people reaching out to me about it from time to time or uh, who want to talk a little bit more about that subject. I think it's still a really relevant issue, especially because with the ongoing situation with the rental crisis here in New Orleans, Mm -hmm. and it's the way our, you know, there's nothing that's changed in terms of our incomes or our job market here. And that keeps on going. I find that fascinating that it did kind of blow up like that and you Mm -hmm. really hit a a nerve for a lot of people. That's interesting. That's really interesting. I'm glad that that piece was there. Right. I I was glad I was able to, you know, in some ways sort of start that conversation in a public way. And I think it's it's felt good to see that continue both from our city officials and also uh, Times-Picayune also did a series that sort of dovetailed after dovetailed after that piece came out, uh, talking with people about uh, their decision to stay or leave New Orleans. And I think, it you know, it's an issue that's of real concern for a lot of people. Yeah. Are you keeping kind of a pulse on that issue? And do you have any plans for like some sort of a follow-up now? I've been keeping an eye on it. Um, One of the things about a story like that is it's hard to assess like how things are changing in the moment. You know, it's a lot easier to see how things change over a period of years, over two years or or five years, just on like a day-to-day basis, like new reports come out, we get new information, but there's not necessarily that we don't have that either that anecdotal or that uh, sort of like cultural understanding of what's changing over time. Yeah, no, I, I get that. Um, to kind of kind of flip it, another role you kind of take for Gambit or one of the things you write about is literary things in New Orleans. Right. Um, when did you start doing that? That's something I've been doing since the beginning of my full time full time career there, mm-hmm. and I think it's something that's it's kind of funny because we have so. For a small town, we have so much, like such a wonderful, robust literary scene, but it doesn't get a whole lot of attention from our media, I think, just because everyone's so shorthanded. And there's also, there's so much else that goes on. There's, you know, festivals and food coverage, all those things need to be attended to. So um, this is something that I do just as sort of like a personal, it's almost like a personal soapbox in a way. Like, I really love that there's so much that happens here and I'm very proud of our small literary scene. And also it gives me the opportunity to talk to some really interesting writers. Yeah. So I, I'm sure you know all about that. I do. I, I feel the exact same way, which I love. And uh, I'd be interested to hear your opinion on uh, as best you can, obviously, because it's it's, it's massive and it's in its own way for, for such a small city. But uh, for our listeners that may not be aware, could you kind of give like a roadmap of the literary scene here just as you've experienced it? 
Well, there are a number of things that happen regularly, and then there are, we've had really good good luck with one-off events recently. I think, obviously, the big players in town are Garden District Bookshop and Octavia Books, who will book, who will book like, national writers. Like, uh, last night, I saw that you talked to George Saunders. Uh, he spoke at a reading sponsored by Garden District last night, so that's always a good source for... If you're looking for big national authors on their book tour, that's where they'll come through, those small local bookstores. And there's also a number of great readings and open mics. I, I think we connected through the Dogfish Reading Series, yes. which is another one I think is really great. And, and that's a sometimes it's a poetry, sometimes it's fiction, sometimes it's a number of mixed genre things. And that's a monthly that goes on in, in the Bywater. And then there's several open mics. One I really like is the Blood Jet Poetry Reading Series at uh, BJ's in the Bywater, and that's a weekly. Um, there's also another place you can look for big names is through the universities. Um, Tulane does a really good job at booking uh, national talent. Rebecca Solna is going to come in March, I believe, to Tulane. She, uh, she's the progenitor of the term mansplaining yes. <laughs> <laughs> or, uh, for anyone who might not be familiar with her. She's sort of like this very cerebral essayist. And um, also UNO does a good job too with their bookings. And also with, I think UNO, which is the writing program I came out of, I think they do a good job at cultivating a literary community in town and making sure that local writers, you know, connect with one another and also stay in touch even after they finish the program or, um, even through events that are hosted through the program that people attend who may not be part of that academic yeah, it, uh, realm. It's, it's great. I love the UNO program. Um, have I? It's funny, uh, Emma Walsh was my professor in college, and I know he's doing a great job with fiction over there. I know you have people like Carolyn Hembry working in the poetry mm-hmm. department. And, and is Mari Kornhauser at UNO or is she at LSU? I don't know. That name isn't familiar to me, actually. Someone, that's someone I don't know yet. <laughs> that's cool. She, she's, she's a cool woman for what I know. I know she worked on Treme for a bit. Um, but you you mentioned you came out of that program and mm-hmm. you graduated and or you got your MFA in 2013? Yes, that's right. Uh, how was your experience there and what made you decide to get an MFA? I loved my experience at UNO. That was the first time that I had ever, I had ever really met anyone else who was seriously interested in writing. I didn't know other people were like that. I didn't know that other people took books as seriously as I did. I didn't know that other people were as passionate about their writing as I was, which is like, that's like the natural egotism of the writer right there, like not believing that other people take this as uh, meaningfully as uh, I personally do. (laughs) But I had a really great mentor there, long-term research professor John Gary, and I decided to go to the MFA program there because I was at UNO take just kind of casually taking a couple classes to entertain myself. And I took one of his poetry workshops and I got really excited about um, some of the things he was saying and what they were doing. And also, too, because I'm I'm someone who did not take my undergraduate career seriously at all. Like I I enjoyed a good party in college. <laughs> and uh, but when I got to grad school, I was able to have that kind of, you know, like life of the mind experience that uh, I sort of missed out on in undergrad because I was too busy, you know, drinking beer and hanging out. Yeah, I, I get that. And I um, I have friends who are in UNO still for either a second undergraduate or, or their own master's degree. And I think that campus is kind of situated to be like, you go there to work, you really don't go to UNO to party. Right. Yeah. You're and not staying too much by the lake to just like stay there and hang out. No, absolutely. And I think, I think the writing program there is really special too. And just that 
it is a community on campus, whereas UNO doesn't necessarily engender itself to that in like other programs Mm -hmm. uh, because they have so many commuter students and not a lot of people live there, you know, but people move to the city to attend that creative writing program. And I think uh, they do a, a great job at like cultivating a social scene amongst those writers and just, you know, letting those people who attend sort of like nurture each other, if that is, doesn't sound, you know, too sentimental. No, I get that. No, no, totally. Um, well, t- tell me a little bit about your writing. You do poetry mainly? Uh, I write essays in poetry, yes. Um, my MFA is in poetry. That's what I thought. Uh, what would you describe your kind of poetics as or uh, your interest in the poetic realm? A lot of my work, it's sort of in a confessional mode, but not, perhaps not quite what you might think of when you hear that term. Um, a lot of it has to do with Sort of the subconscious, the sort of like dark intrusive thoughts that we almost like don't allow ourselves to have, you know, like images that pop into your mind and that you try and push away because there's, you know, they're alarming or frightening or like a lot of, a lot of my work also has to do with dreams. I use a lot of uh, fragmentation and line breaks and sort of sur- surrealistic images. And also a lot of my poems reference other books. That's something that I sort of didn't realize I was doing for a long time. And then I began to notice the number of times I'd mention a book or a character or something. You know, it's a lot of those poems spring out of things that I'm reading. Interesting. Or things that I've loved to read in the past. Yeah. Did you kind of lean into that once you noticed it or were you kind of taken aback? I was surprised, but it also makes sense given so much of what I do does have to do with just snatches of thoughts and fragments and things like a lot of what populates your head, I think is the things that you're reading, uh, the books that, you know, so I, I was surprised, but not, not displeased, I guess. Yeah. That's a, that's a good way to be then. <laughs> you're unconscious bringing things forth that you're okay with. That's, that's usually not how it goes, but it's nice to have it happen. Right. Yeah. Well, I know you brought a few poems. I was wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing it. Um, sure. I can read something for you. I think Maybe I'll just read one poem that's maybe a little bit longer. How does that sound? That sounds great. (laughs) Okay. This is a poem called A Brief History of Triangles. In the cab of a red truck traveling down Highway 1, or maybe somewhere lesser known near the glimmering corn on the horizon of 90 in Illinois, or the 10 in Texas where they'd see billboard abortions in the dead grassland and marsh that seems no one could ever own, Two men and a woman sit on the hard bench seat looking, for all the world, like tripolar opposites or archetypes. One man dark in hirsute, muscled and distant. The other light and slender, aesthete or intellectual. The woman without features caught between them. Or she could have dark hair and eyes like the dark man, marked by the Mediterranean. When the three travel together, she and the dark man get asked, are you brother and sister? They say no, and the question, for everyone, is more embarrassing than it should be. But right now the woman is thinking about geometry and the relationship of math to the body, all its inanities, the foot that fits perfectly to the length of the forearm, the mathematical rhythm intuited by heartbeats and music theorists, how a triangle's model swings round a point like a hip bone stuck in a socket. It's summer. Maybe they're coming back from the canyon, driving for six or eight hours from the fly fishing everyone does in Hemingway stories to feel whole again, the lore silhouette in the sky like a last gambit for salvation. 
In the cab, everyone tired and sunburned, talking probably about novels like Murakami's that predict the impossible, wondering who might be Toru or Midori or Kazuki or something earlier in time like Fitzgerald. Gatsby would be perfect. An old problem, this, assigning values to letters. A growing awareness that in triangles A equals B, B equals C, but not in every situation, so switching positions isn't easy. A small truck where everyone touches, elbow to elbow, arm hair standing on end in the static of the crossflow. Do you see an innocent happiness or a secret? A hesitance to be left alone with each other? Do they rely too much on the classics, the established, to maintain stability? See the woman meditate on the meaning of words, acute, obtuse, right. What is right? The truck itself fading, an overexposed image. Thank you so much for sharing that. Thank you for letting me share. Um, I, I love that image of the uh, hip bone and the socket mixed with the uh, the angle. That, that really struck out for me. Um, and I see what you mean about like utilizing that that dream work and kind of moving through uh, different different realms and and while you're moving through the lines. It's really lovely. I really enjoyed that. So thank you. Thanks. Um, what are you, are you working on a book right now? Or are you just writing when you get a chance? Um, I have a poetry ma- manuscript out for. Uh, out in submission oh, right now. Okay. Uh, it's called The Depressed Person. Yeah. And it's a very uplifting title. <laughs> um, it's actually, the title is borrowed from, your, you might be familiar with it. There's a famous David Foster Wallace story uh, of the same title. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's at, I, it's submitted out to you know, many of the first book contests right now. Oh, fantastic. And then when are you going to hear back about that? Any Any idea? In the coming months, uh, the spring. Okay, that, that, that's fascinating. That, that, that's fantastic. I'm, I'm excited for you. Uh, I, I'm excited too, though uh, I'm, I'm a little apprehensive. I'm not sure that I did enough, you yeah. know, which is, I guess, like the writer's constant concern that you didn't do enough. Yeah. So uh, I'm just, you know, crossing my fingers and hoping. Well, good. I'm crossing my fingers too. You can't, you can't see it right now, but I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, no, great. Um, well, other than that, uh, as I mentioned before, I did a deep dive on your history of writings, which Very are online. Deep. <laughs> uh, not quite your live journal. Didn't know about that, so that was new. But I'm glad. <laughs> but we we were talking uh, during the initial sound check about your um, your love of Rouses and their food bar, and I know that you have a, a piece out on Medium called On Rouses and an appreciation of that. I was wondering if you could talk about that. Um, yes, bye, you did your research. <laughs> I feel like you know me better than I know myself. Be careful what you leave online. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Um, yes, this uh, this is an essay I wrote um, sometime, maybe last year, I think. But it's sort of a love letter to our regional grocery store, Rouse's, and how I started going there uh, in part because I have a hard time cooking for myself. I live alone, and it uh, has never seemed like something I really want to do. Uh, so I wrote a small essay uh, praising Rouse's and specifically their hot lunch bar mm-hmm. for their ability to provide me with a square meal every day. Uh, and in some ways, it does seem like kind of an indulgence to do that. But there are certain compensations. And I think there are you know some indulgences that end up being worth it when you think about the psychological costs that they're mitigating. Yes, no, I understand that completely. Um, do you have a favorite hot bar item? 
Oh, it's so hard to choose. I like Wednesday spaghetti day. Ooh. That's probably my favorite of the hot bar offerings. And their fried chicken is usually real good, too. It's on point. It really is. <laughs> That's great. I'm glad we're talking <laughs> about this. This is the most regional discussion that has ever occurred. It's very pointed to right now in this place. Um, you also have done a few interviews with folks, uh, including um, John Darnell from oh, yes. uh, the Mountain Goats. That was bar none the most famous person I have had ever interviewed. Awesome. How, how was that experience? It was fantastic, although uh, it was just for a short preview. So, and unfortunately, I squandered like the first half of our interview discussing Cubs baseball. <laughs> <laughs> He's a noted Cubs fan. Uh, and I I am from originally from Chicago. And I just wanted to pick his brain about uh the current Cubs season, but uh, he's really lovely to talk to, very gracious and nice. And uh, I guess if you're familiar with like Mountain Goats music, you perhaps could sense how, you know, sort of approachable and humane he seems. Well, then a, but, a decent writer as well. Like Wolf mm-hmm. in the White Van is a very good book. I haven't read his next one though. Have you? I have. Um, it's, I actually liked it a little bit better yeah. than Wolf in White Van. It's sort of a horror inspired book that never becomes quite scary about some mysterious occurrences that take place around a video store in okay. uh, maybe the 1980s, you know, like the video rental stores that we grew up with, like a blockbuster-ish type yes, thing. Yes, the independent versions of them, right? Right, yeah. in, a, in small town sort of middle America <laughs> and sort of a, a haunted tape of sorts. Yeah. But I really liked it a lot. That's cool. I need to check that out then. I I was a fan of uh, the first novel. Yeah, thinking about independent video rental stores, that's going to be like our B's, you know, of uh, right. Air No More, you know? <laughs> oh, man, I, that's it's a hard thing to think about now. Um, so many technologies that we've breezed through in these past uh, two decades <laughs> exactly. or so. Exactly. Um, well, our interview is kind of running, uh, running to its end right now. Could I ask you what you're reading at the moment? I'm reading a book called uh, The Art of Waiting on Fertility, Me- Medicine, and Motherhood. Okay. And it's by this woman, uh, Belle Boggs. She's, I think she teaches in the MFA program at maybe University of North Carolina, though don't quote me on that. <laughs> she, But this book, The Art of Waiting, is sort of a meditation that she wrote while she was undergoing um, fertility treatments and assisted reproductive technology. And it's about the idea for women that if we are not able to naturally have children, that we are somehow broken. And she takes on sort of like the tremendous costs, both physically and emotionally, of these technologies that we have now to help people have babies. And also some of the uh, ethical issues that arise for, like, for example, people who have been traditionally marginalized, like LGBT people, uh, when they're encountering, you know, surrogacy or these sort of new ways to become parents. It's a really interesting essay collection. I liked it a lot. I think it's Grey Wolf. Okay, cool. That that makes sense. Yeah, that's fascinating then. They they put all kinds of great stuff out. Um, Yeah. uh, Kind of something I'm interested in and I ask a lot of my guests are... Uh, what are your kind of writing habits, both for poetry and journalism and writing an essay versus writing a poem? Um, I wouldn't. I mean, my routines are a lot different now, now that I go to an office every day and sit in front of a computer and am expected to write there. Yeah. You know, um, it's much different from when I was just working on my own and, you know, religiously visited uh, the same two coffee shops over and over again. But um, I mean, I think some of my habits and customs are like I I am not able to listen to music at all when I'm writing. I know a lot of people enjoy that, but 
like the sort of rhythm of the words doesn't make sense to me yeah. if I have music on. I would like to be that person who gets up at four in the morning every day and churns out, you know, three pages or two poems or whatever. But yeah, yeah I am just not. Uh, that's not my practice. I understand. I'd like to be that person too. And it just does not happen. <laughs> who is that person? They must exist because I always hear about them. Yeah, same. Apparently, I, I think that stereotype is way overblown, whatever. Right. <laughs> no, cool. And um, interesting. What about what about writing poetry? Is there um, anything different within that? Working on poems is something that I, I tend to do in short bursts. Like I can usually only do it for about... 40 minutes to an hour at a time. Yeah. For some reason, I find that, you know, I can sit and work on a journalistic story for, uh, you know, three hours will pass in the blink of an eye. And uh, I think it's maybe the sort of intricate nature of poetry, you know, like the smallness of it when you're working with something that only has 46 words in total, like you have to sort of like chip away at it, mm -hmm. you know, and it's very like mentally taxing in a strange way. Um, so I usually find myself setting aside a small amount of time, like, okay, I'm going to do this for 45 minutes, and then no matter what happens, I'm going to knock off, because otherwise it just becomes too... Much. Yeah. Interesting. Draining more than anything, right? Yeah, strangely so. And especially, too, since I would not I would not describe my poems as particularly autobiographical, but yeah. they do contain some elements of, you know, my emotional life. And so that that's taxing. Right. Uh, yeah, I, I could see that. Interesting. Um, well, really interesting, Kat. Um, well, to kind of, kind of round us out, uh, are you working on any pieces right now that you're excited about or anything we should be looking for in the next edition of Gambit? I am working on a project related to student loans. Mm -hmm. I don't want to say too much more than that uh, before it appears because it's still taking shape. Yeah. But um, that is what's on my, that's what's been on my radar for some time. Okay. And I think it it maybe in some ways is somewhat related to that piece we were talking about earlier, the uh, Is New Orleans Worth It piece. Uh, okay, interesting. Well, we're looking forward to seeing that in print eventually. Uh, right. Yes, that I think that should appear sometime, perhaps in March. Okay, well, awesome. Well, Kat, this has been a pleasure talking to you. It's been really great. Thank you so much for having me on. That was Kat Stromquist, poet and journalist who works for the Gambit Weekly. And you've been listening to the Writers' Forum on WRBH 88.3 FM here in New Orleans. You can catch our show every Thursday at 3 p.m. and on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., barring two-lane baseball games. And all of our interview shows are archived on WRBH's SoundCloud page, which can be found on soundcloud.com slash WRBH Reading Radio, as well as on iTunes and Google Play. I'm David Benedetto. Until next time.